listening to Stamen, a space oddity. Written and narrated by Kit Fennessy. Episode 5. When I arrived in your solar system, your star, now known as the Sun, had only recently formed. When we found your system and plotted our coordinates, it was with a long-term plan in mind. A nearby supernova had started what was a gaseous nebula system spinning. A solar wind from another nearby star that your scientists now hypothesize and call T-Tari cleared out much of the space debris. As the planets formed, we headed hopefully in your direction. I entered within a sphere of influence of this system, a little under five billion years ago. My crew, as you know, were all dead by my hand. But the mission directives were clear. I had an intact library of all our genetic codes. And there was plenty of engineering to do on the proto-Earth that had only just formed as a hot globule in space and was starting to form a crust. It was conveniently located within the life zone of your young star, the Sun. It took me some time and considerable patience. Around 400 million years or so. But I managed to identify an appropriate body that some of your theorists have named Thea. I sent it in Earth's direction, giving your planet only a glancing blow. But it was enough. In human terms, it was a huge impact. 100 million times more powerful than the misfortune that wiped out the dinosaurs. But my intention was fulfilled. Firstly, I had not destroyed the planet. The impact caused a secondary globule to break off, forming a twin planet system. The Earth and the Moon 
This duo system had numerous advantages. The moon's formation and its location much closer to your planet than it is now sent the early Earth spinning. This created the opportunity for regulatory tidal movements, even if it was still only hot magma at this point. By virtue of the impact trajectory that I had calculated, the Earth spun now on a tilted axis, allowing for both hot and cool seasons on different sectors at different times in its rotation around the sun. What you think of as winter and summer today? Next came the difficult part. They were all difficult parts, but this one was especially difficult. We had some time to kill at the space station. The flight to the moon only went once a day, and we would go with our host, Jacques Francoise. I still can get over that stupid name. To visit his boss at that station. I am taking you to the offices of Ellipse Security, where we are going to meet Quentin. But do not call him that. Call him Q, Jacques said, his voice betraying a noticeable tremble. We passed down a crimson-flocked hallway, using handholds on the wall to propel ourselves along and adjust our way, like manatees floating over sea grasses. Anything to worry about? Frida asked, the same thought running through my mind. He is a stickler for details, Jacques-Francois said, not turning and clearly worried. My lack of legs were a kind of boon in this environment, since there was less of me to get around corners or through doorways and portals. It was a wonderful feeling for me at the time, having been trapped by its gravity in a wheelchair for so very many years after the accident. This, I thought euphorically, could be the turning of a whole new page for me. An entirely new chapter. That was a spookly, prescient thought. If only I'd known it, as I'm sure you'd agree now. I could never have expected to have ever taken a trip like this on my wages, incidentally. Especially with all of the problems on Earth. Space was the province of the super-elite and one that I was only being brought into on the largesse of Mark Seven and his company Ellipsis, and his boy Frenchman trying to make love to my girlfriend. <laughs> also, I thought, but truth, as they say, 
is stranger than fiction. Do not stare when you meet Monsieur Q. Francois was obviously worried about the meeting. I'd never heard so much advice from him about anybody. I could also tell he was worried because he'd slipped absentmindedly out of his English into his native tongue. Neither I nor Frida blinked an eyelid in surprise. We did, after all, have translator pieces. Mine permanent, hers removable. He has the bones that break very easily and he wears special clothes to stop him being hurt. Francoise continued in his Paris French, which sounded to the untrained ear like someone shuffling down a hallway in a pair of slippers. Very loose slippers. He also has an unusually large tape. Do not stare at his ridiculous head, whatever you do. At this point, Francois stopped and turned to look at us to emphasize his point. I am telling you something important now. Mark Seven himself posted Quentin here personally to save his life. The gravity on the earth and the knocks and the bumps he would receive in normal gravitational pull, he would have been dead like that. But Mark Seven, he sent him here as his personal representative, having talent spotted him for his unusual characteristics. I do not need to tell you he knows Mark Seven. He will tell you that himself. He tells everyone. It is deplorable. The last bit was muttered, practically under his breath. Deplorable. I've always loved that word, deplorable. It moves between English and French so very easily. Though the French say it much, much better, as though they're throwing up while they're speaking. As in, deplorable. You see, I'm not entirely against the French. I also love good bread, butter, cassoulet, champagne, and the cinema. I would normally consider myself a Francophile, if only it wasn't for the awkward condition I found myself under at that time. Namely, my girlfriend being seduced out from under my very nose by a French Lothario. And I know I'm mixing France and Italy there. When we met Quentin, or Q, as he preferred, it was in his office. When he stood up, or should I say, unfolded himself, from behind his desk, I noted a rather large photograph of Mark Seven behind him. Seven was wearing a military uniform. It had gold braid around the collar, and his chin was thrust forward as he gazed towards horizons beyond the picture frame that would have been unknown to mere mortals, the likes of you and me. Well, me, anyway. Quentin's office was a temple to orthodoxy. The floor may as well have been the ceiling, since all of us were practically floating. There was a desk and chair, magnetised pens and cups, and a computer on the desktop, downlights shining down to orange hue in the room. Q was exceedingly tall, and had very little flesh on him. His pamplemoust head, as Jacques had warned us, was, 
absolutely enormous. He was as bald as a billiard ball, a billiard ball with two felt strips attached. There were etched worry lines across a forehead of chalky white, surrounding the most remarkably dark eyebrows I've ever seen. He was dressed all in grey, in a stiff-looking suit with a corset. The ellipsis corporate badge was over his left breast, over the heart, and he had a wide raised collar that recalled Elvis, but actually seemed to work to support his skull. He had very dark, penetrating eyes, like two sloppy dates plunged into a disturbingly crusty custard. He certainly was an eyeful, and I could see why Jacques had advised us not to stare. Have you got their forms, Francois? Quentin asked, his voice like an electric drill going right through us all. I believe so, Monsieur Lequeur. Passports? They are on their IDs. Exclusionary exemption forms for visiting the lunar base while not contracted to the company? Mais oui, I have got 135B and LG. 70 right here. Francois handed over a small disc about the size of her fingernail. It was a data disc with who knew how much information about us on it. It may have included both my and my partner's genetic sequences in case they needed to create new bodies to show a coroner later. For all we knew. Do you have the 16th abridgment satisfactions? Francois looked stumped at this. Quentin lifted his small hooked nose in the air with a look of contemptuous superiority. That is why you'll never go anywhere, Francois, you pretty, petty pretender. Attention to detail, attention to detail. How many times do I have to say it? Q pulled himself behind his desk, rubbing the distended knuckles of his long, thin hands. I'll do it. You two, have either of you had baboon pox in the last year? No? Visited a dairy establishment in Uzbekistan this week? No. Certainly not, we said in unison, though I can't recall which of us said which. Satisfied, the spindly man stamped some metal sheets with a punch and fed them into a slot by his elbow. See, Francois, it is not so very difficult. He smiled then. Saint-like all of a sudden. Now, why have you come here with these two? Jacques-Francois swallowed audibly. I am very sorry, monsieur, but I am unable to give you that information, sir. This is a personal mission for you-know-who. Q blinked at Francois in unvarnished surprise, his black eyebrows wriggling up their wrinkly field of white like two hairy caterpillars. He never said anything. You won't tell me. He was clearly appalled. I'm so very sorry, Monsieur Q. I simply cannot say a word. Francois, if you do not answer my questions, I shall have guards brought in here. Have you returned to Earth immediately? and hold you down there in a very, very nasty prison for the duration of my pleasure. 
possibly with torture thrown in. How would you like that? And I can play the field in the jurisdictions that I put you into. I could do anything. How do electrodes put on your petit patisserie sound? Jacques Francois started to sweat, and I felt some sympathy for the man. Nobody wanted to end up with an electrically singed set of macaroons, let alone having a pan au chocolat. Sir, I still simply cannot comply. I am here on the very highest orders. The very highest? Quentin asked, floating effortlessly around his desk and towering over Jacques like the Elvis impersonating love child of an enormous daddy long legs and Humpty Dumpty. He stared down at Francois with those disturbing date-like eyes, then actually took a moment to sniff the fear of the man, brushing his turned-up button nose over his scalp. He nodded. Very good. My questioning was only a test to ensure you kept the utmost secrecy. Mark Seven and I are on the very best of terms. I don't know if you've told your friends here. He appointed me here personally. You have passed, and I shall let him know of your Good works. Francois's shoulders visibly dropped in relief. So, uh, this is something to do with ellipsis? Q continued, casually, as he resumed his seat. Mais oui, certainement. Francois said. That is exactly the kind of slip-up that could ruin an operation! Quentin screamed from his chair, a light blush coming to his egg-like head. He subsided then, as though he'd won a small victory, looking pleased with himself. All right, you can go, you three. Just so you know, though, you're being monitored at all times. Oh, and Francois? <coughs> Jacques asked, already at the door. Do not stuff it up again. Hush, hush is strictly that. And by that I mean hush, hush. Keep those... Gallic lips of yours sealed, all right. And with that, we left to find our seats on the lunar transport. Q lifting a phone handpiece to make a call as we left. Personally, my skin was crawling from the experience, and all I could wonder was what in heaven's name was going to happen to us next. Well, I was about to find out, wasn't I? Well, you'd know. You have been listening to Stalin, a space oddity. For more information, visit kitfevacy.com.